This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Humility by Andrew Murray Chapter 8 Humility and Sin Sinners of Whom I Am Chief 1 Timothy 1.15 Humility is often identified with penitence and contrition. As a consequence, there appears to be no way of fostering humility but by keeping the soul occupied with its sin. We have learned, I think, that humility is something else and something more. We have seen in the teaching of our Lord Jesus in the New Testament epistles how often the virtue is inculcated without any reference to sin. In the very nature of things, in the whole relation of the creature to the Creator, in the life of Jesus as he lived it and imparts it to us, humility is the very essence of holiness as it is of blessedness. It is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. Where God is all, self is nothing. But though it is this aspect of the truth I have felt it specifically needful to press, I need scarce say that new depth and intensity man's sin and God's grace give to the humility of the saints. We have only to look at a man like the Apostle Paul to see how, through his life as a ransomed and a holy man, the deep consciousness of having been a sinner lives inextinguishably. We all know the passages in which he refers to his life as the persecutor and blasphemer. I am the least of the apostles, that I am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. 1 Corinthians 15:9 and 10 Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, was this grace given to preach to the heathen. Ephesians 3:8. I was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. Howbeit I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. 1 Timothy 1, 13-15 God's grace had saved him. God remembered his sins no more forever. But never, never could he forget how terribly he had sinned. The more he rejoiced in God's salvation and the more his experience of God's grace filled him with joy unspeakable, the clearer was his consciousness that he was a saved sinner and that salvation had no meaning or sweetness except as the sense of his being a sinner made it precious and real to him. Never for a moment could he forget that it was a sinner God had taken up in his arms and crowned with his love. The text we have just quoted are often appealed to as Paul's confession of daily sinning. One has only to read them carefully in their context to see how little this is the case. They have a far deeper meaning. They refer to that which lasts throughout eternity and which will give its deep undertone of amazement and adoration to the humility with which the ransom bow before the throne as those who have been washed from their sins in the blood of the Lamb. Never, never, even in glory, can they be other than ransomed sinners. Never for a moment in this life can God's child live in the full light of his love, but as he feels that the sin out of which he has been saved is his one only right and title to all the grace has promised to do. 
The humility with which first he came as a sinner acquires a new meaning when he learns how it becomes him as a creature. And then, ever again, the humility in which he was born as a creature has its deepest, richest tones of adoration in the memory of what it is to be a monument of God's wondrous, redeeming love. The true import of what these expressions of St. Paul teach us comes out all the more strongly when we notice the remarkable fact that through his whole Christian course we never find from his pen, even in those epistles in which we have the most intensely personal embossomings, anything like confession of sin. Nowhere is there any mention of shortcoming or defect, nowhere any suggestion to his readers that he has failed in duty or sinned against the law of perfect love. On the contrary, there are passages, not a few, in which he indicates himself in language that means nothing if it does not appeal to a faultless life before God and men. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and righteously and unblameably we behaved ourselves toward you. 1 Thessalonians 2.10 Our glorying is this, this testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and sincerity of God we behaved ourselves in the world and more abundantly to you word. 2 Corinthians 1.12 This is not an ideal or an inspiration. It is an appeal to what has actual life had been. However we may account for this absence of confession of sin, all will admit that it must point to a life in the power of the Holy Spirit such as is but seldom realized or expected in these our days. The point which I wish to emphasize is this, that the very fact of the absence of such confession of sinning only gives the more force to the truth that it is not in daily sinning that the secret of the deeper humility will be found, but in the habitual never for a moment to be forgotten position which just the more abundant grace will keep more distinctly alive that our only place the only place of blessing our one abiding position before god must be that of those whose highest joy it is to confess that they are sinners saved by grace with paul's deep remembrance of having sinned so terribly in the past before grace had met him and the consciousness of being kept from present sinning, there was ever coupled the abiding remembrance of the dark hidden power of sin ever ready to come in, and only kept out by the presence and power of the indwelling Christ. In me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. These words of Romans 7 describe the flesh as it is to the end. The glorious deliverance of Romans 8 the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has now made me free from the law of sin which once led me captive, is neither the annihilation nor the sanctification of the flesh, but a continuous victory given by the spirit as he mortifies the deeds of the body. As health expels disease and light swallows up darkness and life conquers death, so the indwelling of Christ through the spirit is the health and light and life of the soul. But with this, the conviction of helplessness and danger ever tempers one's faith in the momentary and unbroken action of the Holy Spirit into that chastened sense of dependence which makes the highest faith and joy the handmaids of a humility that only lives by the grace of God. The three passages above quoted all show that it was the wonderful grace bestowed upon Paul, of which he felt the need every moment, 
that humbled him so deeply. The grace of God that was with him and enabled him to labor more abundantly than they all, the grace to preach to the heathen and the unsearchable riches of Christ, the grace that was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus, it was this grace of which it is that the very nature and glory that is for sinners that kept the consciousness of his having once sinned and being yet liable to sin so intensely alive. Where sin abounded, grace did abound more exceedingly. This reveals how the very essence of grace is to deal with and take away sin and how it must ever be. The more abundant the experience of grace, the more intense the consciousness of being a sinner. It is not sin, but God's grace showing a man and ever reminding him what a sinner he was that will keep him truly humble. It is not sin, but grace that will make me indeed know myself a sinner and make the sinner's place of deepest self-abasement the place I never leave. I fear that there are not a few who, by strong expressions of self-condemnation and self-denunciation, have sought to humble themselves and have to confess with sorrow that a humble spirit, a heart of humility, which with its accompaniments of kindness and compassion, of meekness and forbearance, is still as far off as ever. Being occupied with self, even amid the deepest self-abhorrence, can never free us from self. It is the revelation of God, not only by the law condemning sin, but by His grace delivering from it, that will make us humble. The law may break the heart with fear. It is only grace that works that sweet humility which becomes a joy to the soul as its second nature. It was the revelation of God in His holiness, drawing nigh to make Himself known in His grace that made Abraham and Jacob, Job and Isaiah, bow so low. It is that soul in which God the Creator, as the all of the creation in its nothingness, God the Redeemer in His grace, as the all of the sinner in His sinfulness, is waited for and trusted and worshipped, that will find itself so fulfilled with His presence that there will be no place for self. So alone can the promise be fulfilled. The haughtiness of man shall be brought low, and the Lord alone be exalted in that day. It is the sinner dwelling in the full light of God's holy, redeeming love, in the experience of that full indwelling of divine love which comes through Christ and the Holy Spirit, who cannot but be humble. Not to be occupied with your sin, but to be occupied with God brings deliverance from self. End of chapter 8.